Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 6. Um, if we haven't met, my name's Andy, by the way. Um, one of the pastors here. I think I've met most of you, and if not, I'm very sorry. Please come and say hi afterwards. We'd love to get to know you. Um, we've been going through the book of John as a church since the fall. Since the fall? It has been that long. This year, okay. We're in week 15 now of our study of the Gospel of John, taking a look at the life and teachings of Jesus, which is, which is great, right? Because like we've just said, we're a church that wants to know Jesus and make him known. So it's our prayer that whether you're new to church or the Christian faith, or if you know these stories, you know, by heart, well enough that you could preach on them yourself, or you find yourself somewhere in the in-between, which is probably describing most of us in this room, it's our prayer that through the study of John's gospel, you're getting a better picture of who Jesus is and what he's about. Because that idea, that understanding shapes both our lives here on earth And when our time on earth has come to a close, it's got significant ramifications in our lives. And you don't have to look too far to recognize that there are many, many, many opinions about who Jesus is and what he's about. There's so many, so, so many. So in seeking to know Jesus and make him known, we want to bring as much clarity to who he is as possible. And we do that by studying the book that records his life and his teaching, and that book is, many of you have it in your hands right now, it's the Bible. And today we're coming to a passage that is super familiar to probably most of you in this room. I mean, even if you haven't been around church very much, it's very likely that you've heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000, or at least heard it referenced. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a pretty great story, and it's also one that kind of gets like wrecked a little bit by those who try to come at it from many, many different wrong-reaching angles, making big things into little things and little things into big things. It also gets retold in strange ways by people who have no space in their faith, or lack thereof, for the, for the supernatural. And a spoiler alert, that's, that's not where we're headed today. Uh, We've got a lot of room here at Crossroads for the supernatural. So with that in mind, let's dive into our passage this morning, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. I'm going to read this for us. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they could, pardon me, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. 
And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. God, as we study this, I just pray that you would give us humble hearts to recognize where we have misunderstood you and that you would open our eyes to see you for who you are. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1 of our passage starts with these words, after this. So after what? Well, we've been looking the last couple of weeks at John chapter 5. If you've been following along, you'll remember that Jesus healed the man waiting by the pool of Bethesda and then had to respond to the questioning by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. So after that, and after really probably a whole bunch of other things, like we know that it didn't take place immediately after that interchange um, because our story today takes place kind of the north end of the Sea of Galilee and the Pool of Bethesda is down in Jerusalem. It's, it's over 100 kilometers as the crow flies. So this isn't one of those you know, immediately transitions in the Gospel of Mark. It would take a while to get there. We're also told in verse 2 of our passage that there was a large crowd following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus and the disciples have been traveling, and Jesus has been teaching and healing, and so have the disciples. And as this has gone on, the crowd that followed grew. And they followed him all the way out to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, in our passage, we don't get a lot of the detail, the background information that is recorded in some of the other Gospels. Um, Here, we're simply told that Jesus then crossed the sea. And in verse 3, he went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. The same account in the Gospel of Mark gives us this little bit of extra info, which helped kind of set the stage a little bit. Mark chapter 6, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So they'd made it to the seaside. The crowd was growing. They'd been working so hard, dealing with so many people, they hadn't even had time to eat. And knowing this, Jesus takes them for rest. So this is continuing in Mark chapter 6. And they, Jesus and the disciples, went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So this was Jesus' MO, right? Knowing what's to come, he's going to get away, he's going to get rest, he's going to get centered, get back to ministry. But it's something that he models for us and calls us to follow him in. But as we know from our own experience and from what we read in these passages, the crowds and the busyness, they don't just disappear when we do. They're there all the time. They don't just go away because we have. And in this case, as Mark tells us, even though they could see that Jesus and the disciples were like trying to get away by boat, they were having none of that. (laughs) They ran around the sea to meet them on the other side. Now, quick note, Sea of Galilee isn't actually a huge body of water. By comparison, for those of you in the lower mainland, you know, it's about about three quarters of the size of Harrison Lake. So not small, but not huge. The western shore of the sea was known as the Jewish side. So anything other than the western side was considered the other side of the sea. So in all likelihood, the trip for the crowd was actually only about 12 kilometers, kind of up and around the top part 
of the Sea of Galilee into an area known as the Golan Heights, near the town of Bethsaida. So it's far, but it's not too far. And the people had heard things and seen things, and they were telling others, and they were gathering a crowd, and they were following Jesus because they had some ideas they wanted to bounce off him or, you know, actually by force, force on him. And the disciples, the disciples as usual, they're a total mess, which in addition to being a source of frustration for the readers, I mean, come on. They have seen so much. They've done so many things. They should be far more ready for the test that they're about to have. This should be also a great encouragement to us because we are no different, are we? I mean, we can see ourselves in the disciples. We can see ourselves also in the crowd. And by God's grace, we're able to take steps and become more like Jesus using these examples and learning from them. But it's work, isn't it? For the rest of our time this morning, I want us to focus in on what I think are two temptations that we face when following Jesus. And there are more. I think there are so many more. We're like a a dog in a park full of squirrels with that, right? Like there's so many temptations. But in our passage this morning, two temptations when following Jesus that we see in the disciples and the crowd. Temptation number one is making too little of Jesus. The temptation to make too little of Jesus. Take a look at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus sees the crowds coming toward them. In both Matthew and Mark's versions of the story, we're told that Jesus saw the crowds and what? He had compassion on them. He saw them. He knew what they were about. He knew what they wanted and what they needed, and he had compassion on them. And so, as Mark tells us, When they got there, Jesus taught them for a while. I mean, they had just run all the way around the lake to hear from him. They're making much of Jesus, sort of, but we'll get to that later on. It's not the crowd we're focusing on just yet. It's the disciples we see caving to this particular temptation. Jesus asks Philip where they could get bread. Now, Jesus, or pardon me, Philip grew up nearby in Bethsaida. So it's almost like Jesus asking a local, like, where's a good place to eat around here, Philip? That's not the test that he's giving him. And we know this because John mentions next in verse 6 that he, Jesus, said this to Philip to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knows what he's about to do, and let's be honest, he knows how Philip is going to respond to the question. So he tests him. Philip, who had not just seen Jesus do amazing things, no, In in the power that Jesus had commissioned the disciples with, they had actually done some absolutely amazing things themselves. Mark 6, again, starting in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then in verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. That... That is what they had just done. The disciples, Philip, the one being tested through the authority given to them by Jesus, they're coming off this unbelievable experience from which it seems they had learned nothing. Jesus tests him to see what he has learned, and we know. The word test in our passage is the Greek word perasmus. It's a test or a trial or a temptation. We find it elsewhere in Scripture. 
For the ladies who started our James study this week, you'll remember reading, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, Parasmus, of various kinds. For you know that the testing, see the trials are a test, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The test isn't to shame. The test isn't to harm. It's to build up. We're tested not to see if we're somehow good enough and worthy enough to meet God's standards because let's be very clear, we are not. No no amount of testing is going to prove our worth. No amount of knowledge is going to make us acceptable to him. We have all already failed that test. Romans 3 tells us that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all failed that test. They are justified freely by his grace through redemption, pardon me, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Faith in Jesus, the work he did on the cross, his righteousness is what makes us right before God. But the test that Jesus is giving his disciples isn't one where, you know, if they fail, that's it, it's game over. You know, you don't get to be a Christian anymore. Jesus tests Philip, he tests us to help ingrain in him, in us, a better understanding of just how great Jesus is. Not to make an example of us, but to move us from where we are to a place that's closer to where he wants us to be. Because we will likely fail the test right? We will. You've been there. But the next one, right? Yeah, we're going to fail that one again, right? We're going to fail the next one too. And maybe the next one, but maybe not the next one. And maybe not the next one. Maybe through the testing of our faith, we become steadfast. And steadfastness has its effect on us and we may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Like that sounds, that sounds pretty good. But it doesn't come from an easy life. It comes through testing, through trials, not necessarily good times. In John 16, after the Last Supper, Jesus is sharing some wisdom with the disciples on his last night with them before his crucifixion, and he encourages them, and subsequently us in verse 33, when he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart... I have overcome the world. So Jesus is showing this very thing to the disciples in chapter 6. we got 10 more chapters before he says it specifically, but right now he's checking to see if they understand. Truthfully, it is going to take them a long time to get the fact that Jesus has overcome the world and its troubles. Verse 7, Philip answers Jesus' question. says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Philip's answer to Jesus' testing question is based on data, right? Like just circumstance. 200 denarii, which was about eight months' salary for a working man, that that couldn't buy enough food. It's not possible, Jesus, is basically his response. And Andrew, another one of the disciples with these crazy experiences who has seen Jesus do so many amazing things, his response is really not any different. 
Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? When their faith is met with a test, their lack of faith shines brightly. Can you see yourself in this? Like, I hope you can. I certainly can. Like, how many times have you been in a testing situation and all you can see is the data? The circumstance that you're in. Your knee-jerk reaction right away is just, oh no. This is impossible. This is how it ends. I'm totally guilty of this. I'm so grateful I have people in my life who are constantly reminding that though it may seem impossible, Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Trust Jesus. Take heart in Jesus. He has overcome the world. When we're met with those trials, we don't say, oh no. We say, God... I don't know what to do, but you do. Can you show me? Can you show us? Can you do something great? That's the answer to the question that Jesus was looking for. Like when he said, hey, Philip, where can we get bread for these people? He wanted to hear, well, Jesus, even if we had a big old pile of money, we couldn't get enough for everyone. But you could do something about that. Would you? I believe that you can. Please do. And then maybe Andrew comes up and says, hey, there's a kid with some bread and some fish. It's not much, but like you can do something with that, right? Now, that's not what happens in this passage. And it's generally not what happens with us. But it's the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for from the disciples and us. Because he can. right? He can work miracles, and he wants to. And in a couple of verses from now, he will, but he wants us to make enough of him that we expect him to come through, even when it seems impossible. And not just as an, you know, a second thought. Like our first thought should be, oh man, impossible. Oh wait, no, not impossible. Jesus. Let me stop real quick here because this way of approaching this passage brings another temptation along with it. And the temptation to think that If I just believe that Jesus will do something, he will, regardless of what it is that he wants to do with the situation. I don't know what your test is. You might not be experiencing a test right now, but you probably are. You might have a serious medical condition or a broken relationship or a tough work situation. I'm not suggesting a health and wealth prosperity gospel approach here. We're not talking about a transaction or a formula. You know, if I just input enough faith, things will play out how I want them to. No. Jesus knows what he wants to do, he said in that passage. He tested him because he knew, he already knew what he wanted to do. And what he wants to do might not look like what you think it should look like. His desire is that we would make so much of him That regardless of what he brings our way, we believe he's capable to deliver. And that whatever he chooses to do is actually what we need. Because it should be the expectation of every Christian to experience suffering. It should not be our expectation that because we believe he's going to make everything smooth sailing. That's just not the case. When we have the expectation of suffering... When we're met with it, we don't find ourselves unprepared. Like, oh no, I thought this was all supposed to be easy. We're prepared and we don't only see the impossible. 
We've got to have an established faith that makes much of Jesus and expects that he can do anything with the little or nothing that we feel like we have. Much like what he does with the young boy's bread and fish. Barley loaves. Now, that might sound good to some of you bakers, but like barley loaves were the worst kind of loaves back in the day. Like gluten-free today. They were considered the bread of the poor, which is not like gluten-free bread today. The fish wouldn't have been fresh-caught fish from the lake. They would have been pickled fish, which is like the worst kind of fish, which is the worst kind of anything, really, pickled. Fish chutney on gross bread. That's what he had to offer. Not much. And the little that they had, it was gross. But when we make much of Jesus, what we offer, what we have, small or unappealing as it may be, small or unappealing as we see ourselves and our situations, those things can be used by him to accomplish his will. Elizabeth Elliot put it this way. If the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this is material for sacrifice has been a very great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ. I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fishes. With the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what good, or pardon me, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, What is the good of that? The point is, the use he makes of it is none of my business. It is his business. It is his blessing. So this grief, this loss, this suffering, this pain, whatever it is, which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith and bringing me to the recognition of who he is, that is the thing I can offer. I love that. The use that he makes of it is none of my business. Now, the disciples weren't in a spot, spiritually, physically, emotionally, whatever, to respond this way. They didn't know what to do. But Jesus knew what he was going to do. And it was pretty great. Verse 10. Finally getting to the miracle part. You guys are like, yes. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now that's amazing. It's a miracle, right? Miracles are amazing. And we've heard this so many times, though, that it might just seem a little bit old hat. Yeah, Jesus just kind of did this thing. But can you imagine being there? passing the baskets around. And if you had seen the initial offering and then seeing the leftovers, like, that's crazy. Philip said there wasn't enough money to buy enough food. Andrew said that what they had wasn't good enough to feed everyone. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, yeah watch this. Watch, watch what I'm going to do here. It's a miracle. And when we get to this miracle, this is where a lot of preachers spend most of their time. And we're going to spend some time here today, but not a ton. It's an amazing thing that happens, but really it's pretty straightforward. It's an amazing thing that happens. Jesus takes food, he gives thanks for it, and he makes enough for everybody. That's kind of the, you know, we got that covered. 
Not that there aren't subtleties. You know, there's cool things like the 12 baskets of leftovers that are collected represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus meets the needs of all of Israel and everyone in the world. But it's also just a simple and clear picture of Jesus' power over nature. Some preachers spend the bulk of their time here because there are cool things to find in the details. And again, there are. But others camp out here because they're trying to explain how all this could have taken place without relying on the supernatural. Now, you may be shocked to hear this, but some people don't believe that Jesus actually performed miracles. Right? I know it's, I know it's a shock. It was news to me, too. Not just atheists and those who are antagonistic towards Jesus. I'm talking about pastors Entire Christian sects and denominations that discount the miraculous because, like, really? A miracle? R.C. Sproul wrote this in his commentary. In the 19th century, there developed an academic school, the Religious Historical School, that sought to reinterpret and revise the biblical record to strip it of all supernatural elements and reduce it to accounts of natural events centered around a man who distinguished himself as a great ethical teacher namely Jesus of Nazareth. And many of you know the story of Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, and how in 1819 he painstakingly cut out all the references, like cut out with scissors and knives, all the references to the miraculous works of Jesus. He didn't believe them. It bothered him to read them. Sproul tells the story of another scholar's attempt to explain away the miracle in our passage today, and this is just some comic relief for you all. Prior to the event, Jesus and his disciples had found a nearby cave in which they had stored a huge cache of bread and fish. When it came time to feed the people, Jesus had his disciples line up, forming a bucket brigade of sorts from the cave. As Jesus stood at the mouth of the cave, the disciples clandestinely passed bread and fish to him, and he pulled it out of his sleeve until he had fed almost all of the people. If that is what actually happened, that was the most prodigious magical act in the history of the world. Like, that's a miracle, right? For people to buy that. It's not just 19th century stuff, either. This happens today. A current popular teaching with a strictly natural worldview suggests that the boy's offer to share what he had moved the crowd to compassion. That many of them had actually brought food along with them, and the boy's generosity paved the way for those who had to share with those who don't. It's a Christmas miracle, right? We shared. It's a beautiful sermon about sharing. That's not where we're landing today. We may not be a church that demands signs and wonders, but we're definitely a church that makes Jesus, or that we are definitely not a church, sorry, that makes Jesus subject to the laws of nature. And that's good because he isn't even if we thought he was. And I have quoted Lee before a few times with this quote, and I'm going to do it again. We encounter miraculous stories all the time in the Bible. Jesus heals people. The walls of Jericho fall down. Jesus is raised from the dead. So this is really nothing new. And either we have a worldview that allows for God to intervene in nature, or we don't. And for real, I'm not trying to earn brownie points. Lee's not even here today. Maybe maybe he'll listen to the podcast. But he is bang on with this. We believe in the miraculous or we don't. But we shouldn't make the mistake of making them, these miracles, to be the center of our attention. The miracles that Jesus performed, they were to show us more about who he is. They weren't the end, right? They, weren't, um, they were a means. These miracles were to give us insight and faith. Many of them met an actual real need 
but they were never to be made more of than Jesus himself. The first temptation when following Jesus is to make too little of him. The second is to make too much of ourselves. And you might be thinking, shouldn't he have said making too much of miracles? It's a fair question. And it would make great logical sense given what we've just said, but we'll get there. Verse 14. When the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we shift our attention now away from the disciples and onto the crowds. And the people are blown away by what they saw. And <laughs> the internet is an amazing thing, and everything is connected. I just got a text from Lee saying, Oh, I'm listening. <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate that. And now I don't know where I am. The internet! That wasn't written down. <laughs> the crowds, that's what it is. The crowds are saying, this is our guy. We found our guy. We know from verse 2 that they had come to Jesus. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now we also know from verse 4 that the Passover feast was at hand. John calls it the feast of the Jews. This was the big one for Israel, right? This was their 4th of July. A celebration of nationalistic pride. Think synagogue sermon series about freedom, right? They'd be thinking about God's promise of deliverance. They would see the miracle and say, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And this is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where God is telling Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. They're saying, this is the prophet who's going to be like Moses, who led God's people out of slavery, who fed the people manna. I mean, God fed them manna, but Moses was leading them at the time, right? Like, this is the guy, though, who is going to deliver us from Roman oppression and feed us with a new magical kind of bread. Let's make him our king. And you know what? They're right. This is the guy. This is the guy who's going to deliver them from oppression and slavery, but not from Rome. From sin and from death. He's the one who's going to feed them a new magical kind of bread. But it's not barley loaves. It's the bread of life. And in a couple of weeks, Lee will have lots to say about that. The end of chapter 6 is all about Jesus being the bread of life. They've got the right guy, but they've got the wrong idea. They can't see past the miracles, the signs, their opinions, their desires, their felt needs. They are making too much of themselves. They weren't making too little of Jesus. I mean, they were making very, very much, much out of him. But their own stuff was getting in the way of letting them see what these examples of supernatural power were really about. They were blinded by their desire for nationalistic freedom and independence, stuck on this idea that the Messiah was going to come and give them a place of prominence in the world. But that's just not what he came to do. King, yes. Deliverer, Yes. Waymaker. Miracle worker. Promise keeper. Yes. But not in the way that they and probably even the writer of that song expects or wants. In John 18, Jesus is questioned before Pilate about Jesus' intentions of kingship. And he answered, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. We're told in our passage that Jesus perceived that they were coming to take him by force and make him king. So he left. He displayed his power over nature, so surely he couldn't be worried that they were actually going to take him by force, right? He's going to say, peace be still to the sea, and it's going to stop. This isn't about that. But 5,000 men, I mean, that's a sizable group. They could make Jesus their king even just by claiming him as such, to take up arms and move on Rome in the name of Jesus, our deliverer. If he were the kind of king that they were expecting or hoping for, the crowds, as Jesus said in verse eight, or chapter 18 and verse 36, they would have been fighting that he might not be delivered over to the Jews to be crucified. That's not what his kingdom is about. We know this. And he keeps saying it. He keeps teaching about love and forgiveness and holiness and humility and grace and mercy and, and justice but they wanted a king. And this was so far from what Jesus wanted that he didn't even stick around to reason with them. Their hearts were set. So he, in verse 15, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now this week I was reading Leslie Newbigin's writing on this passage and came across a quote that so clearly hit at the heart of what was happening with the crowds and with us when we allow ourselves to make too much of ourselves. He said this, The crowd had followed Jesus because they saw him as a healer, as one who could satisfy their needs. The feeding confirms their opinion. One who had led Israel out of slavery and had called down manna from heaven had also promised that the Lord would send another prophet like himself who would speak God's word. And it seems to have been a common belief that he would also bring down manna from heaven. Jesus must be this promised prophet. The long-awaited day of a new deliverance is at hand. The enthusiasm of the crowd rises. They will seize him forthwith and make him their leader. This is not faith, but unbelief. They have not understood who Jesus is. Jesus will not be the instrument of any human enthusiasm or the symbol of any human program. To say Jesus is king is true if the word king is wholly defined by the person of Jesus. It is false and blasphemous if Jesus is made instrumental to a definition of kingship derived from elsewhere. Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captives, but he will not become the mascot for a people's movement of liberation. At the very moment when the cry, Make Jesus king, is rending the air, Jesus abruptly disappears leaving both the crowds and the disciples with no visible goal for their enthusiasm. And this quote landed on me so profoundly this week. It pointed out my arrogance when it comes to owning Jesus and making him the king that I want him to be. I titled this message after a quote from 18th century philosopher Thomas Carlyle in which he said, Men are like the gods they serve. We are like the gods we serve. So who do we, pardon me, who do we serve? Many of us in this room say Jesus. So who do you individually 
Who do you, who do I, and who do we corporately as a church, who do we think Jesus is? Because that matters. It shapes our lives. We've got to have the right idea. We've got to think rightly about ourselves and make much of Jesus, the right Jesus. And look, let me be very clear, very clear. This is very important. It is not any one group that has a monopoly on the wrong conclusions about Jesus. Okay? It is all of us. In case you think Newbegin's quote is directed at any one of the many ideas represented here in this room as to who Jesus is and what he's about, I've got another quote for you, which is from Kevin DeYoung, and he takes a shot at all of us and the different Jesuses that we may embrace. He says this, There's conservative Jesus, who is against tax increases and four family values and owning firearms. There's liberal Jesus, who is against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There is therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as they are. There's touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcome of Super Bowls. Better start praying, big game next week, go Bengals. There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus, who was meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot wearing a sash and looks faintly German. There's spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine. He wants us to find the God within and listen to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and dream up impossible utopian schemes. There's Guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's Boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around us and we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret places. Oh, it's bad, guys, it's bad. There's there's Good Example Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for. The son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. The one to deliver us from captivity. The goal of the Mosaic law. Yahweh in the flesh. The one to establish God's reign and rule. The one to heal the sick. To give sight to the blind. Freedom to the prisoner. Proclaim good news to the poor. The Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Do you know him? Or is there a chance, guys, this is us, is there a chance that the Jesus you love or the Jesus you despise isn't actually Jesus at all? And so, I'm still continuing the quote. It's like the longest quote we've ever read here. And so, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, a crowd wants to take him and make him their revolutionary Jesus, and he won't have it. He moves them off and sends the disciples right into a storm, Because it was what they needed. And that's what we get to look at next week. So how do we do it? How do we find the right 
Jesus. And how do we submit to his authority and not our opinions and felt needs? How do we make much of him and less of ourselves? Well, there is not time in all of the sermons you will hear in your entire life to cover that. It's an ongoing process. As Eugene Peterson called it, it's a long obedience in the same direction. It's not a, it's not a quick, easily arrived at conclusion. But really, okay, Andy, you said, we, we, what, what? What now? For starters, we pray and we ask God's spirit to reveal Jesus to us in truth. We do this corporately here in this room, like we're doing right now. We, we get together and we study God's word. We study the life and teachings of Jesus. We see what he actually has to say about himself. What we don't want to do is do this in a vacuum. We do this in community. We do this in accountability with other believers who are going to do the same thing so that when we stray, when we start putting emphasis on the wrong things, we can be challenged. And we can challenge others with the same. In love for one another, as Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We need each other. We need the unity that Keanu talked about today, the unity that comes from being part of the body of Christ in communion with one another. We need the love for one another that Jesus said would be the marker of his people. Left to our own, we are in far greater danger of making less of Jesus and more of ourselves. He must increase, I must decrease. We exist to know Jesus and make him known. As we study God's word on Sundays... In our community groups throughout the week, with our friends, in our men's and women's studies, here in this room on Wednesday nights with youth across the street, on Sunday mornings with the kids at the square, it's our job to make sure that we know the right Jesus. And through our words and our actions, communicate the right Jesus to those who don't know him. And it's the intent that I have and the prayer that I have for our church that we will continue to be shaped by God's word that his spirit would continue to guide us and shape us into who he wants us to be, that we would do what God's word says, that we would love Jesus more, and that we would make much of him and be a light in the darkness, because that's what we are called to be. So let's pray together. God, I thank you. I thank you for the examples that you give us. And God, we are sorry for the times that we see those examples, we read them, and we look the other way, and we still go after the things that we think are important. God, help us. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to know what it is that you want from us. Help us to know the real you. We pray that you would help us also to repent and to turn from any idols that we may be following right now. I don't know what they are. God, I'm sure that we regularly put other things ahead of you. Help us to make much of you. Help us to make very little of ourselves. Not not in a self-deprecating way, God, but in humility before you. We just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.